from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, president of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hello, EAH listeners. We usually start off chatting about energy news, uh, what we've been up to and the conferences we've spoken at or attended. But for the final episode of season five, we thought we would shake things up just a little bit and take you along to the biggest green energy event on the calendar, COP28 in Dubai. Chris, this was your first conference of the parties. Was it what you expected? And what were some of the key themes you observed? Well, as you said, it was the first time I'd been to COP, so I, I kind of came probably thoroughly unprepared, um, but um, was was well looked after. I mean, uh, for those of you who've never been to a COP before and uh, you know, definitely don't have the experience that Alicia has, uh, I think the, the first thing that's a bit strange is that it's, um, for most people, unless you're in the blue zone, which is the sort of designated diplomatic zone, it basically is a trade fair. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a train fair where there's something kind of quite big going on with people coming in and out, but essentially it's a very, very large train fair with some quite interesting people all in one place. Um, and I think that's kind of, uh, from what I heard, was also a stronger sense this year than in previous years because the blue zone and green zone were right next to each other. Um, and distance actually is really interesting here because everything outside of the dip, the blue and green zone for Cobb which is in the other side of Dubai, is actually quite a long time to get to. So, you know, you do find that um, even though there are lots of people there, you actually don't meet as many people as you maybe um, would think you do because there's quite big distance, so you never make it to as many events. Um, so I think that's just like a bit of general background for people. Um, in terms of like the content, though, and, and actually what happens there, I think what is fascinating is that it takes you out of your bubble so whether you're doing mega projects and now you have to talk to people doing small projects or or vice versa, whether you're doing hydrogen, you're now talking to people who are doing forestry or who are doing ocean preservation, I think it's a very healthy environment to sort of force you to see and be aware of the much broader array of different topics that are frankly under discussion. So all of that is is really interesting. And then it's also just a forum where you get to meet people in very close quarters. So uh, I got to meet um, the CEO of CDP, um, who, um, you know, really interesting character at one of the BCG events. Got to meet um, a variety of people at one of the Barclays events that I was at as well um, that was quite interesting. And then got to meet um, Ben Van Burton at um, one of the McKinsey events. Um, but, you know, these are rooms where often there's only 30, 40 people. So that's probably the big difference is your ability to sit and talk with some of the biggest names out there and see what they're up to and what they think is interesting. Um, so what do they think? Um, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, I think a few observations. One, uh, I think Europe has already lost the game for great projects. Uh, my sense is that giga projects in Europe are dead, absent ridiculous state subsidy. And that I think it's very clear to me anyway that the Middle East and Asia 
and maybe parts of Latin America and parts of uh, Africa are going to be very, very dominant um, in the large-scale green e-fuel production side. Um, and I think the US is only going to really stay competitive because the IRA is such a generous mechanism. But I think anyone planning gigawatt-scale projects in Europe, frankly, I think is being, um, if, if you're not building them before 27, 28, I think, I think they're done. That was a big takeaway for me. I'd expected it was going to come soon, but I think it's moved much faster than people realized. Um, and then I think the other side of it as well is um, how many themes are challenging everywhere. So, you know, a very common theme is the challenges that uh, people are having with procurement. Um, actually had uh, chairman of BCG say that his number one issue that he spends time with internally is working with his procurement team. Heard the same issue from CDP. Their number one issue with companies is working through procurement. So that was interesting to see that um, in some ways it's not about government regulation. It's about actually how big companies make purchasing decisions. That's one of the big sustainability barriers. So I think those were two big themes that kind of came out for me. I would have to agree. Um, it is a sprawling enterprise, especially in Dubai, where they just keep building further and further out. So you could drive quite a long distance between events if they're not all at uh, Expo, um, which is where they held it this year. And Expo itself is gigantic, and it is a lot of it is outdoors. So it was a little bit interesting because there was a lot of negativity towards oil and gas companies, as I'm sure you read about and heard about from people and that they shouldn't be there, um, a lot of, of sense that, that they were somehow taking over a cop. And I think if you actually went, you you would not feel like they were taking over a cop at all. But they were sweating in their polyester suits in the extremely hot December 10 in Dubai weather. The reason it was in December is because it absolutely should have been no more than 20 degrees during the day, and it would be like 12 degrees at night. Like, this is unheard of that it was so hot. So it really did point out uh, the issue that we're trying to solve. And I think that's actually quite, it's a good thing to have people actually feel it. But I also saw like compared to just even Glasgow, the amount of discussion about hydrogen and green fuels and, and different uh, emissions intensity, all of this was just everywhere. I mean, this was discussed everywhere. It was really a big part of, of COP and, and it was, such a small part, even in at COP26. I mean, it was, almost, I think, the first time they even talked about it. And the first time I talked about it. But uh, we also, what, what was interesting this year is shipping also got a COP28 uh, presidency high-level ministerial. Um, so it's the first time that that's happened. And there was a whole 48 hours event for shipping. So shipping was a big part of it because they've realized that shipping companies are actually eager to help solve things, and that they are not just contributing um, the 3% or so of, of emissions, but, you know, they are transporting fossil fuels, um, and they're transporting green fuels, and they're also making it possible for us to outsource pollution to places like China and then ship the finished product back to the West. So within shipping, actually, there is quite a much larger effect on total emissions. And so if you find ways to get shipping right and to get outsourcing right and to get these sort of structurals right, you know, we might end up shipping less crap for less money and less shipments, but higher quality. I think that was really interesting. And then, of course, this was the COP of inclusivity. In addition to the Global South, uh, there was a big emphasis on uh, youth, gender, and just basically um, all the different ways to um, 
include different viewpoints and especially uh, countries and people that are overlooked and underprivileged and probably suffering from global warming more than the people who actually caused it. It was interesting, that diversity, actually, Alicia, to think about there. It was like, um, you know, it was a lot of young school kids, you know, which I think was surprising to people, you know, actually probably how, um, you know, probably wouldn't have been what you'd expected. But there were lots of big school groups and tours. Apart from kind of a festival-like atmosphere, you know, you had like dancers and singers, you had lots of like trade exhibits, um, you know, you had an enormous amount of diversity of nationalities and ethnicities, um, a lot of women present which was good to see as well because i know previous cops that's always been an issue obviously i i don't have the benefit of seeing that and i think the cliche assumption is that you know you're in a country in the middle east and so that would have been a challenge but it, it did feel like the diversity was was actually pretty good um I, you know, I don't even know if you, you know, this is maybe a silly comment, Alicia, maybe this was common in other places, but even things like food diversity, like when you're in the grounds, like they made a real effort to like make sure that they had like food from all over the world that was like there so that you could cater to lots of different people's interests. All of the, um, all of the food that was like purchased was also using like no pl- um, plastic, which is like seaweed plastics. It's all biodegradable, like all these e-scooters everywhere, all these e-bikes, like so kind of for the more millennial or more digitally savvy, you could get around using them. And then they had electric trains running around for people with mobility issues as well. So like, it was quite interesting to see how they trying to pull all this together to make it a bit less of a, you know, (laughs) a standard conference vibe. Absolutely. I mean, this was a very difficult conference with a lot of people, you know, that group with 150,000 student activists uh, was there in in large form. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, um, you know, it was, it was really hard for them to pull off. So I, I, I think, um, despite the, uh, the, the swearing that occurred while we walked through these huge areas outdoors, and when it was so hot, I think that they, they really did like the best job they possibly could have. So I thought it was the best cop I've been to, but it's from talking to other people, it just, these things are just getting better and better. So with that, I think it's worth it our while to jump back to a few weeks ago, back over to Dubai, and we'll share some excerpts from some of the speeches, panels, conversations, and interviews with some of the key hydrogen folks that were participating over the the couple of weeks. We've been doing this great platform of Abu Sustainability for 15 years. And this is the first time we do it in Dubai. We have this opportunity because of COP28. We said we need for our partners to choose a special place. So we chose for you Burj Khalifa and soon the fountain. So you can enjoy it while you're having this dinner. I just want to say that our journey over the past 17 years was done with a lot of hard work, collaboration, and partnership. This is our DNA. Our DNA is basically designed for partnership. I just want to say thank you for your friendship, thank you for your partnership, and let's look forward 
to tripling renewable energy and to a net zero target. Thank you. So that was Mohammed Jamil Al-Ramahi, CEO of Renewables giant Mazdar, kicking things off in Dubai in front of the synchronized fountains and the Burj Khalifa, quite a tall building. This was at what is known as a side event, um, as it doesn't take place within the green or blue zones, which sprawled out across the Expo 2020 site um, in Dubai this year. And there are a number of these all over the place. And this has also helped to make it more inclusive for um, business people as well as government, because COP is generally UNFCCC only, and you know you are you are their guests. So um, having other venues uh, is actually more inclusive. It was quite clearly a very big deal there, and I think the host did roll out the the green carpet, I would say, rather than the red carpet. Um, for people and they wanted you to travel they gave unlimited free passes for people on all the metro lines they discounted all of the green ubers to go around and see you know and um you know it was a bit of a surreal experience because you had all these side events as you rightly say they were all over the city and so people were crisscrossing all these incredible hotels and these massive conference venues and um you know getting a chance to see and uh you know i guess an opportunity for dubai to sort of show off what it's done and uh, what it's looking to do over the period um it was uh yeah it was it, it was quite clear like how important that this was and you on the radar and and um yeah it was it, it encouraging to see that they also cared i don't think uh, in london it was so obvious when cop was being hosted in the uk that people you know granted it was glasgow but <laughs> in other parts of the uk people didn't seem to be as animated or as excited as they were in the uae so I'm Marina SSP. I'm part of the Natixis Bank. I work in infrastructure and project finance. Um, I've, I've been in Dubai for seven years and I can see how important this region has been uh, in the energy transition over the past seven years. They started with almost no existing renewable capacity and today look uh, in uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, in Oman and Saudi, you see the projects coming either already on stream, connected to the grid, or so many of them also under construction. And they're going the next step. The next step is green hydrogen, it's blue hydrogen. We see Neon Green Hydrogen just closed in May. It's the largest in the world, first of its kind. It's a landmark project that will export every year 1.2 million tons of green ammonia to Europe and especially to Germany uh, to decarbonize uh, transportation and heavy industries. We also see Oman having launched two waves now, the first wave with Hydom Phase 1 and Hydom Phase 2, and you had the legacy projects that are also closing or reaching, you know, end of feasibility study and so on. So it's really great to be part of this amazing, amazing momentum in this region. And I think this region will become the lead when it comes to all of these new technologies. And let's hope that women can have a key part in that trend and can find their whole space in the energy transition story. You can just hear the excitement in Marianne's Esprit's voice about the huge growth as well as the focus on equality by gender and across education in different countries. Um, what is happening in uh, Abu Dhabi um, is, is quite amazing. Next up, continuing with a list of quite incredible characters, we have the Director of the Future Energy Department at the UAE Ministry of Energy and Infrastructure, Engineer Noel Alhani. She's based in Dubai, and for this particular clip you're about to hear, she'll be speaking about some of the standards and programs that she's working on, which you know we think you find interesting. Hydrogen is a new uh, economy. 
and new fuel. So, and we consider it as a future a fuel for us. So, we work with the Ministry of Education to make sure that the youth and uh, the youth within the schools as well as in the university are building the capacity and know what is hydrogen exactly, what is the exact capacity needed in this area, and we are developing the curriculum with them to make sure that they are having the skills in board and also developing a toolkit somewhat. So basically, we are also working with the university to identify what skills we need to make sure that they embed it in their courses. And then also we are attracting the talent. It's not only about making the national people or the, the young generation from the, the country itself uh, have this learning. However, also we are extracting experts to make sure that our young people also shadowing those experts in this field. And the third bar barrier we have in place, it's how to accelerate, how to have the company that will produce and to the end user, how to connect those, how to make sure that the adapter agreement is in place, which is, I think, a lot of challenges in this place. That's why in our bilateral meeting or bilateral collaboration, we make sure that we have B2B matching, and then there's a lot of projects now ongoing on this field. This is also one of the last thing I think I could mention on this regard. Also, how to make sure that gender also, because we are a woman. Uh, so I think in the gender, for us in the, in the country, our leadership and our highnesses make sure that in the places, at least 50% from the workforce is a woman. And uh, in our ministry, we are about 50%. Also. So this is one initiative as well uh, that I heard a lot of people in different uh, sessions complaining that a lot of uh, women cannot enter this field, especially energy. And then now it's energy. So basically, we are doing alhamdulillah a good job. And we'll be more than happy to exchange also another, any, uh, a lot of uh, stories after. Really incredible to hear how much Nawal has accomplished. And next is Princess Michelle bint Saud Al-Shalan from the Public Investment Fund, PIF, of Saudi, discussing this more broadly. I thought this was never going to happen. But lo and behold, you could tell that there was momentum towards reaching an agreement in COP21. We're a few cops later and we're seeing more of this antagonistic approach of are we doing enough? Do we trust the perspectives of one another? This crisis of trust is becoming more and more large, both between countries' positions and how they relate to one another, but also between communities. Uh, the forgotten, I always recall, is those pockets in the global north, not solely in the global south, but in the global north that no one even talks about. And that becomes a much more difficult conversation to be had. It's a very fraught subject that people also fear the signaling of being on a panel to even discuss it, let alone get to the nitty gritty of what it takes. So this is a space that we have to keep our eye on if we do not engage or choose to engage with it in a way that's transparent, that's inclusive, then we'll be doing ourselves a massive mistake. Uh, it, it's these difficult conversations that need to be had and need to be had in the best most transparent vehicles to ensure that we're safeguarding our today before our tomorrow. I feel like this point was really well illustrated by Karuthika Sadagopan from Reliance Industries, who talked about her journey starting out in fossil fuels and moving towards green energy. She realized early that although she felt passionately about green energy, it wasn't always going to be the easiest path, and she decided to be an intrapreneur. I kind of studied the renewable industry more and more, and I realized uh, however hard the industry players work and however hard the policymakers 
work to make a difference. Things aren't moving because the cash cow is our oil and gas industry and the conventional power industry. So we had the cash, we dealt in billions and millions, nothing less. We had the money, we had the scale and we had the expertise. And without us being involved, things could not change, however hard the external environment tried. So I, <laughs> I decided, okay, uh, so I should do something uh, from inside out. I should work out, I mean, I should bring in the transformation from inside out. And I drew inspiration from people whom I never met. Uh, some of the people working in the likes of Exxon Shell, uh, uh, in the, I mean, who are working in the energy transition initiatives across the world. I've never met them, but I've read their stories and I wanted to be, I mean, do something similar to that. So, <laughs> the daytime, uh, in the daytime, I worked uh, for my organization to build new business opportunities in oil and gas. And in the evening and on weekends, I worked on my plan. Uh, using the trust that I gained by my successful, uh, uh, you, know, it, you know, stints in a couple of initiatives, and also uh, using my lessons that I learned, I I kind of carved the green story, the green pitch, to take what they want. That is, I positioned the green story as the next growth engine for the organization. How much value can we create for our uh, uh, business? How much value we can create for our investors, customers? and also our employees. Thankfully, that time, uh, COVID stuck. I should not thank it, but COVID stuck and people started realizing the need for going towards green. So uh, I slowly and steadily, I brought on board uh, the senior leaders in the organization. I won their uh, 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 support and I convinced my boss. And by the time I was reporting to uh, one of my uh, uh, directors of energy or board member, so I kind of won, uh, uh, won his trust and uh, convinced him. And once he uh, got convinced, he gave me full support. He became my sponsor, sponsor for my scores. And he took it to the board and uh, we con slowly we convinced the board. And then we also, uh, so this is what happens. So we convinced the board and then we got, uh, uh, we struck one of the India's first major partnerships in hydrogen that kind of catalyzed the uh, market there. And then we, uh, uh, we kind of uh, launched uh, two joint ventures. And then uh, we also created hundreds of jobs and we mobilized a lot of people from my own uh, organization who were working in a sunset business, in a traditional power business to move to uh, the green. So giving them a second opportunity. So I think it would be impossible to be at an event like COP where we're talking about hugely consequential transitions, um, significant changes, um, and obviously in an area where there is significant financial resources, and all of that means that you're going to talk about cash and the money funded for the transition and who, and ultimately who is going to pay. So for the next two clips, you're going to hear two different voices. First voice you're going to hear is from Anna Marie Pinto, who is the Transport Division Chief at the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, so she will be discussing the private and public sector roles within energy in Latin America, a topic that is a particularly live and, and interesting one and, and important for our listeners because the role of development banks like the IDB, IADB, I should call it, sorry, is a very, very live and has been a very topical area for all of the build up to this particular COP and, and certainly coming out of it. 
And then the next voice you'll hear is Jeremy Nixon, who is the CEO at One. So this is, a, again, an organization that's based in Singapore, and Jeremy is the co-chair of the World Shipping Council. So you should find this context a little bit interesting. This is actually from a specific event called Shaping the Future of Shipping, which is organized by the International Chamber of Shipping alongside COP28, organizes and the Ministry of Energy and Infrastructure from the UAE. For a long time, the, the, the investment on infrastructure has been done by both, at least in Latin America and the Caribbean, by the, by the public sector, by the private sector, lately, at least in the the last 30 years. But with all these initiatives and new initiatives, we're going to need more and more of the public sector to invest and to develop new projects to kind of enable this transition. And we lend normally $2 billion a year to governments. And I would say that we will have, in the last 10 years, we have had three or four projects around ports. And that means that what normally the public infrastructure is concentrating the investment is more in roads or maybe urban transport. So this means as well that we need to go back sometimes, I would say, to the drawing board or policy and where, how we prioritize public investment. And why I'm saying this, because when we go to work, we talk about decarbonization from the transport sector. Some years ago, it wasn't on the agenda very clear. So for those investments to be able to, to be fostered by the public sector, and I would say by the private sector, we need first the regulatory environment, the policy environment for that to happen. It's quite basic. It's like kind of what we do when we want to move a new um, initiative. Include in, in, in the policy making, in the national plans, the connection between the energy transition and uh, how the transport is plays a role. Not just in adaptation and mitigation, but you have said today how transport can be an uh, important plan part of causing the supply chain of, of the transition. The second thing is about incentives. It's not just about policy and plans, so how the public sector can as well, can as well um, contribute with a financial and non-financial incentives for doing that. And thirdly, and not less important, is of course the projects. But with that, I think it's very important to work with the private sector, and, and, and I think you're going ahead of some time what some governments are doing, but of course I welcome that Latin America is playing out like a, uh, an important role of this transition, and now with the Secretariat uh, leading by Panama, I think Latin America has a great opportunity, not just for the building infrastructure itself, or generating these clean fuels. So how we can be exporters of, exporters of that clean fuels, and how we're going to develop that infrastructure that is needed. So as for the bank, we will be looking at supporting the government from that side. Helping them, I would say this is quite new for lots of the government, so we need to work with them to, to help government understand the role that they have in this transition in how a technical cooperation and knowledge and research and data for making them play a, a crucial role in this. We have some very, very strongly capable players on stage and players that frankly we're very lucky to have in this industry. Uh, we all bump into each other at different conferences and events around the world. Many of us go back to the original Glasgow kickoff 
which the ICS kicked off with Espen and uh, Guy and the team. So I think we've got many, many more people now engaged with that, involved with that than we had two, three, four years ago. And I wouldn't be included in that. Three, four years ago, a lot of us were sort of hiding under the sofa about this decarbonization developments. And uh, you know, just a lot of us getting together and saying, okay, this is important. We need to do this. How do we do this? And we've been developing and covering so many of the key issues, debates around the chicken and the egg, and you know, how, how do we do this, and all those big technical issues that we've got to overcome, issues around the manpower, the fuel availability, do we have the port infrastructure, do we have the supply infrastructure, do we have the finance? I think all of that is really critical stuff. Those are all key enablers, but I think we're in confidence. We can work on those together. We're going to get to a lot of those very, very difficult and challenging issues. But the one that really, to me, sticks out, to you know, the container shipping side, is the point that uh, Lord Turner was making about, at the end of the day, who's going to pay for this? And uh, how, how do we get that to work? And uh, our business is, uh, in the container shipping side is, you know, we are the, the owner of the, of the ship, we're the operator of the ship, we're paying the bunker fuel, and we're dealing with the end customer as well. So we're, we're on that kind of B, B2B, but we, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the parties down the line are dealing with the consumer. So B to C, I think everybody gets it. You know, that pair of Nikes, uh, you know, $2 is the cost of moving the freight. It's going to go up by 10 cents, maybe once we go green, uh, people, people will hopefully get that, and that should be an issue. But it's in the B to B sector where we really, really have the challenges. And can I just give you a very simple example? Um, occasionally, I get reeled out in front of customers. In fact, I love to see customers a lot. I'm not probably the best salesman that O&E's ever had, but I do love to talk to them at a high level about some of the dynamics and things that are going on in our industry. And this very simple question I put to them, I say, look, you know, the average freight rate for a 40-foot container on a deep-sea movement is around about $3,000 a 40-foot. And um, of that $3,000, you know, $1,000 is kind of overheads and uh, moving equipment around, another thousand is on the capex, but one thousand is the opex. The opex is cost of the fuel oil. And I say, you know, dirty old fuel oil, um, that's a thousand bucks. But when we go green, and we do want to go green, and the industry will have to go green, those new green energy fuels are no longer a thousand dollars. They're going to be three thousand dollars. At least initially, in the first 10 to 15 years before we make scale, because it's going to cost a lot more to make these uh, fuels, but secondly, of course, back to the energy intensity issue, and we need a lot more of it to get the same carbon intensity uh, of the initial fuels. So, Sorry, Mr. Customer, but that $3,000 freight rate is not going to cut it because actually the fuel cost is now over $1,000 to $3,000. So actually, we will need to charge you now $5,000 just to make the same type of margin. So are you ready? Are you ready? You know, we're going to pay three times as much for the fuel, but are you ready to pay 60% more on the freight rate? And that's where the conversation goes a bit quiet. <laughs> It's a bit like when we check into the hotels and we ask to tick the box about, you know, do you want to make a contribution towards the towels being washed or do we get on the aeroplane, um, you know, are we going to give our, our, our carbon credits, etc. And that's really the Eureka moment, is how do we get past that point? And we have to make some huge, uh, huge commitments going forward on the offtakes with the green fuels. Uh, we're already, many of us, moving ahead with the dual fuel ships, which are much higher on capex. As I say, the OPEX is going to be 300% more, potentially, uh, in the start of. So how do we get those customers across the line? And I think that's really where we have to come back to 
really request and ask uh, uh, the dear ILO and our regulators and everybody in government to get with us on this, to at least set the ground rules which then allow us to move forward. And I think you know that's what we're really looking for from a, um, an industry regulator, which is to really get that market formation phase picked up and set out, and then we can all move forward with the market acceleration phase. As mentioned, a key industry discussed at COP this year was shipping. With 48 hours straight of discussion, panels, interviews, receptions, galas, a high-level shipping ministerial hosted by IRENA, and a COP28 presidency high-level shipping ministerial, which covered every aspect of shipping. It, it was really um, quite, quite a lot of time, and I'm not sure I slept uh, for that entire weekend. You'll hear some of these speakers, uh, which will explain why. The next one is Jean-Francois Gagne, the head of Clean Energy Ministerial, SEM Secretariat, based in France. He touches on the progress we've made so far. This is sadly my 10th pop, uh, but the good news about having been there 10 times is when I started, I used to be alone in a small room, very little people listened to me, trying to say, how are you going to address climate change without the energy sector at the table? Now, I can tell you that this year, we actually are going to get threatening renewable energy and doubling of energy efficiency into negotiated tax. So that is progress. That is how the action agenda can actually influence the ambition. This is why having a forum like this today to be able to say how can transport also contribute to this is great. Now, what we're hoping to do today is create not only an energy and climate relationship or a transport and climate relationship, but a transport and energy relationship. We've heard it today, you, there's a need for, for more collaboration, and luckily we're not starting today. We started the discussions about a year ago. The Clean Energy Marine Hubs was launched at the Clean Energy Ministerial in Goa, India in July. So today we're here to talk about how can we operationalize this, this initiative. So the more eagle-eyed listeners will notice that there is a, a very strong shipping flair to uh, a lot of the clips that we're playing uh, to you in this particular uh, episode of Everything About Hydrogen. And we thought we finished off that way as well. Um, it was a particularly consequential year for decarbonization of shipping and, and COP was a great way to signal it off. So we thought that we would end on that high as well. The, the final clip that we're going to play for you is going to be a clip from, is an interview between David Shukman, who is a visiting professor in the practice at the Grantham Institute on Climate Change, and Arsenio Dominguez, Secretary General-elect of the International Maritime Organization. You may remember Alicia speaking earlier in the year about the role that the IMO plays, how important it is in decarbonizing shipping. So this is hopefully a discussion that you'll find interesting to hear. We could talk a little bit about impressions. Mm -hmm. There's obviously energy, there's obviously commitment, there are obviously big worries about different kinds of potential barriers. You've got your work cut out. Is there one thing you want to share with us that you're going to take away from, from today? Uh, thank you. It's been a very wide and rich debate, and that's why I actually stayed the whole day. Because uh, I wanted to hear what everybody has to say. It's very easy to go into a negative stand or just be very cautious. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that even during the different panels, whenever it was, there was a couple of comments that probably were something a little bit negative, there was always someone that would come up and say, but we have a solution for mm -hmm. this, or we can actually find a solution. So we are on the right track, and it's been very clear that we have made a lot of progress. Look at what shipping was many years ago. 
before uh, 2011 when IMO started to focus more on cleaning um, you know, and increasing the energy efficiency of ships. Where we are right now, we're actually at the front of the curve. So it, it's very good to know that we are prepared to work, that there is a challenge, but as we've been saying, uh, and I've been discussing this with quite a few, if it was very easy, anyone would do it and probably get more quite quickly as well. But the reality is that we're not the only ones. It's yeah. every single sector. We put it on the, or you put it on the first uh, couple of uh, videos, and it was the fact that trade is also changing. We have to change, we have to adapt, because um, otherwise we're gonna be behind. We keep talking about not leaving anyone behind. Well, if we don't do it ourselves, we're gonna be the ones staying behind. As if this was planned, that sets up a question that came from Prasanna. This was not planned, I can tell you. It's not planned. <laughs> Genuinely, it's not planned. Asking about whether smaller companies, the rich, big companies, have deep pockets and they can afford to maybe buy dual fuel ships and, and, and sort of experiment. Smaller ones can't. Now, from your perspective, how do you make sure no one is left behind? Early movers. So we talk about those who can. Similarly to what we do in the United Nations, when you have developed countries, developing countries, and within the developing countries, the smaller and developing states, and least developed countries. And we know that those who can, we need, they need to actually support the others. That's what we talk about um, a, a level playing field. And yes, it's, it's a very good objective. But when we actually talk about that, we need to recognize that we are not all at the same level. So this is the same thing. We have five big companies that already made a declaration. They can take the lead. They can then assist others to come on board. How do they do the assisting? Well, we have to share. You know, we were talking about sharing, cooperation, being transparent and all that. So I know it's business, but we actually have to help others to come on board. Um, th this is almost like us being professionals. You don't want to take everything with you uh, just for scare of sharing information that somebody's going to take your job. If you want people to work well, to be with you, you have to share all your knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that we have to do with, 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 with shipping. It's a fragmented sector. We, we heard that earlier. And it is true. Even the IMO regulatory process is like that. We have to regulate depending on the type of ship. But that doesn't mean that we have to behave the same way. We can still work together and behave in more unison. So this whole collaboration and cooperation that we keep repeating, it's how we do it. Okay, so another theme that came up and actually is in one of the questions is the safety of the moment. Now, I, I actually think that's been answered very, very well by our friend from Young. I mean, it's been handled a lot for decades, um, but it is new as a fuel at sea. For you, is there a piece of work in addition to everything you want to do around messaging, public understanding, reassurance about a new fuel that could, I could see, could very easily be spun by opponents of this agenda as, oh, I don't want to go there, too risky. You mentioned opponents of this agenda. Again, um, and on the risk of getting into trouble even before I start officially. Um, <laughs> sometimes we try to compete with each other. So when we talked earlier, and that was, that was very well I don't think we were ahead, but it was the way that it came up. The common fields are dangerous, mm -hmm. and we have learned. We have transported in ship ammonia, right? the regular fuels. We have transported in ship ammonia. I mean, regrettably, we still have accidents. Hope that there is no case for that in the future. 
but we prepare for that. And it's worth so saying we're not in there. It's worth saying that when the Exxon Valdez spilled a lot of oil at sea, it there. didn't stop. <laughs> yeah, but my point is, my point is, it didn't stop the transport of oil by sea. No, we're, look at where we yeah. are right now. Mm -hmm. um, but then, let's not compete with each other. So yes, there are risks with ammonia. But those that are banking on other methanol or ethanol or hydrogen don't bring down ammonia because of that, because that will give you an advantage. Um, we have said that it's fuel agnostic. We need every single opportunity, every measure that is going to take us there. Let's do the same thing with the fuels. Now, we have to work with the general public as well, because we have to also provide that sense of uh, confidence and security in order to get to that level. We can do it. Um, other industries can do it, the energy sector can do it, and at national level, constituencies will have to work on that as well, together with the ports. If they're going to invest in all this, they also have to take that part of the responsibility. And we need to share that with them. We need to let them know that they also have to play that role. I think a, a sort of another communications challenge is something that uh, Alicia uh, Eastman uh, flagged up. Well, you know, I and others have been talking about a green premium. <laughs> And she said, well, of course, that's oil industry framing, that to go green, you have to pay extra, rather than highlighting, as we've heard in, in the last panel, there are external costs to using fossil fuels that are not included in the price. And I, I wonder whether there's something around, we're talking about carrot and stick and so forth, with incentives and pressures to how to move an agenda forward. Is there something in the way IMO talks about fossil fuels where something around the costs can be included in that description as an incentive to get off these fields. Um, we don't work in isolation. I mean, it's quite public the conversations that are taking place right now at UNFCCC on phasing out or scaling down fossil fuels. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but all of those will actually help us as well in the shipping industry and at IMO. Um, the way that we're approaching the uh, economic measures or the pricing mechanism that we're going to develop, is again, let's allow us to focus on what we're going to use it for. We know the timeline for that to be in place, and it's going to help the transition. Maybe within the sector, we can see what else we can do to support it. But let's not, let's not label it right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a contribution. It could be the way that it actually is going to phase us out from uh, the, the conventional fuels and take us into the renewables. Uh, Focus on the positives. And I know that sometimes we're going to say that I'm too optimistic, too positive. But again, somebody has to do it. And for us, is IMO, we can come up with the solutions. There was a lot of doubts with the 2023 strategy when we started at the beginning of, uh, of July. Look where we are right now. Mm -hmm. So a big part of this, and a major theme that's emerged during the course of the day is, is the role of governments. And we had that fascinating panel with the, with the, with the ministers. One observation from my side, I'd be interested to hear what you, you say is, you know, governments are very rarely single entities. I mean, they're meant to be, but we all know they operate in silos. It's a little bit like newsrooms. I mean, the newsroom I, I used to work in, you know, the environment reporter, business reporter, political transport, all separate, which you get in governments. So historically, traditionally, I would deal with transport ministers. Whereas possibly what, given the breadth of the engagement we're talking about now, you've got energy ministers, treasuries, prime ministers, business ministers, I mean, it's, a, it's a, perhaps a more of a complicated challenge when it comes to the necessary engagement you'll have. It's a welcome challenge. 
You love it, don't you? I, I love it. That. What can I say? <laughs> you can say it. No, I'll, I'll tell you why. I spent nearly 20 years. I don't. That, that, yeah. I think I've never heard I spent nearly 20 years in the government working for Panama, and I saw how fragmented we were. And just recently, um, we organized an event uh, for IMO in order to promote the strategy, and we invited uh, experts from the energy sectors and workers from the energy sectors to join those from the maritime sector. And now that we realized that there were countries that already have their energy strategy and they have never spoken to the shipping counterparts internally. Now, one of the things I want to bring to the organizations, apart from enhancing transparency, diversity, inclusivity, and the image of the organizations, is also who we actually speak to. So I know that we, I'm, I'm limited with the amount of work that I can do with the budget that we have, but when we go into technical corporations, and my colleagues in the building are all up for this, is precisely that. Let's just not focus in working and dealing only with the shipping side, because we need the energy sector, we need the environmental ministries as well, because they have a role to play. And you have also the foreign affairs. When you look at COP, it's difficult for the shipping ministers sometimes to actually come here, because from experience, it's foreign affairs first, then it goes into the uh, uh, environmental, and then the rest of the ministries. And there's a limit on, on the capacity that the government can actually pay for people to come as well. So we can do that. And it's the same thing for everyone here. When you actually see the challenges, just go and speak to other people from outside. We don't have to isolate ourselves. We can, as well as communicate and learn from others, we can also try to bring them on board with us. They will understand what they have to do from their side. We are going to understand better as well what their challenges are. That last interview with Arsenio Dominguez, the next Secretary General of the IMO, beginning in January, uh, was excellent. And you can just feel the energy he has to make this work. The fact that we have him for eight more years is just amazing. He's going to lead this charge, and he is bursting with ideas. Uh, he is also going to be on our podcast in February, so we will keep you up to date on when that is. Wow. Well, that was definitely a speed tour of COP in Dubai. Um, so now that we're, we're all back back home, what do you all think about it? Either either the COP itself, um, obviously there's been an awful lot of news, but also I, I suppose those clips that you shared and that, that you heard both in person, but also, you know, the conversations around them. And now that we know the results, actually, given the 24-hour the extension, are we are we happy with the direction that we're headed in? So who wants to kick us off? I'll do it. I think when when this was announced that it was in the UAE, you know, there was a lot of pushback because obviously there's a lot of fossil fuels in the UAE and it is what is known as an oil state. But sometimes when people say oil state in the Middle East, it doesn't sound the same as when they say oil state in Norway or, you know, other, or the US for that matter. So I think it was a bit of a surprise for people just how hard the country tried to make this a really pivotal, a really important COP where actual decisions were made, where areas that had not gotten enough attention were brought up to the light. I think it was quite well done and they worked, they worked very, very hard. 
Um, I think, you know, we've never seen a 24 hour, like didn't go back to sleep extension to get an actual agreement out. I think that is, is pretty indicative of, of how much they really wanted this to be a real pivotal and change making event. And I also thought it was just wonderful to hear um, the clip from Noel. You you hear that they had the goal of having equality amongst gender in not just hydrogen or in, in you know one section of energy, but in all of energy. And they have hit it. They have more than fifty percent women in all roles in energy in the UAE. And these are not administrative roles only. These are everything, engineers, management, top management, everything, 50%. And I'm not sure that we've met that anywhere in Europe. So I think there were just a, a lot of really good signs that we're heading in the right direction. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that people probably went into the COP with fairly negative expectations. Um, I think it was more positive than people expected. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. You know, I think there was a sense that Sultan Ajabar did more than people were expecting him to be able to do. You know, there was some last-minute interventions from um, OPEC that were particularly controversial, and obviously the build-up to COP was quite controversial. I still think that there was a lack, in my mind, of engagement from investors in this particular COP. I think there was some good engagement we saw from governments, and I think we definitely saw a lot from the oil and gas industry, which we expected. Certainly things like flaring was particularly topical and we were expecting to see that and we did see that. We didn't see as much on coal um, that I thought we might see. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of back and forth around that, particularly from countries like Colombia and from India um, and Indonesia and to some extent China, but we've not. Um, we didn't make as much progress there as I think people hoped. And then there's obviously the loss and damage fund, which also has been a big Big area, um, and the UAE did step up and put quite a bit of you know money to get that sort of moving, and as did a couple of others, including the UK. But we sort of expect that, to be honest, that will be the big one to fill out going into next year. And the one thing that no one discussed at COP but has been done in parallel with this COP is this exercise called the Global Stock Taking Exercise. It was a big deliverable that came out of the very famous COP in Paris, and. What it was supposed to do is basically say to the world, where actually are we on all of our progress towards decarbonization? Are we me measuring and monitoring and verifying everything correctly or not? Um, you know, and how far have we got to go? Um, and so it's a massive document that really is supposed to shine light on things. And to perfectly coincide with that, and I don't know, Alicia or Patrick, if you had a chance to look at it, Al Gore was very, very present at this COP, spoke frequently. And one of the things that he did in align with this global stock taking is they released a website that Al Gore has been funding a company that uh, provides a combination of satellite surveillance and also AI to track major sources of CO2 emissions all over the world in real time, drawing on multiple different sources on their own to try and basically give the world, give NGOs, give charities, give activists the ability and investors the ability to hold these largest emitters to account. So I thought that was super interesting to see at this COP as well. Yeah, I mean, it's actually really remarkable given, you know, the video that went out beforehand. I don't think people expected him to show up, but he shows up at every COP and he has some really incredible initiatives and things that he is so dedicated to. I remember last year, he did something for McKinsey that was on uh, the semiconductors and these fabs and, and the, the sort of chemicals that last for millions of years. 
I mean, there, there's, there's problems beyond CO2, sadly. <laughs> um, and, and he's really into all of them. So, um, yeah, I think it is also a wonderful sign that he was welcomed, that he was speaking, you know, everywhere easily, and obviously said some pretty negative things about particularly the entities in the Middle East. I mean, he didn't attack Chevron and Exxon. And whatever he was saying could have been applied, you know, five times to them. So um, I, I thought that was interesting. It was it was great to look at, at to see um, the freedom of expression that that was allowed. So maybe maybe a final forward looking question. It sounds like you both saw some great value and, and some great momentum building in in COP twenty eight. As we look forward to to COP twenty nine. Are you, uh, number one, are you going to go back? And number two, are we on a course correction here? Are we moving towards the right track? Although, <laughs> I think, um, yes, it's in Baku this year. I, I mean, next, I don't know what uh, dates are, but it's going to be in Baku. Um, and I would go just to hear that combination of Azari and uh, traditional American jazz, but I, I definitely see it in the areas that I focus on, as you know, shipping and, and um, other um, sort of e-fuels, ammonia in particular. These are really moving forward. And one thing that we didn't mention from this COP that will carry forward to the next one is that we announced, um, you know, the establishment of a methodology to calculate the emissions intensity of any given molecule of hydrogen or ammonia or, you know, other byproduct that's a molecule. And um, that will make it possible to, for us to actually have a certification system so we can compare apples to apples and we can have international trade of, of these molecules. And that has already been signed over to ISO and ISO is working on that as well to put that into basically um, something that most of the world will follow. Already 80% of the world has signed up to it. And so I think there's going to be a lot more movement on that. So by the next COP, you know, we're really looking at um, fully tradable fuels or, and, and molecules, which, which is almost really very fast. Um, this got started last summer and uh, I think it's absolutely necessary for us in order to have a market, in order to have these things move forward. So um, it is, it's, we're in very good shape there. And this is going to be life cycle. So it will include um, flaring. It will include all of the different, um, uh, different elements that add into the total emissions. Um, so it's not just CO2, it's, it's all emissions and it is life cycle. So I think that is really heading in the right direction. Um, and that came from this COP and is going to be finished, I believe, in the next one. I mean, maybe just from my side, just to say, I think, um, you know, obviously I'm, I don't have Alicia's uh, draw across to the whole shipping world per se. I mean, I think the piece that I'm going to be really focusing in on, um, you know, and I do, I'm looking certainly to think about COP next year, uh, apart from selfishly loving the idea like uh, you, Alicia, of going to Baku. I also just think, we, we underestimate how little time there actually is left to make material and significant changes. Um, you know, the expression, um, this is the decade of action sounds trite, but it really is the time where if we don't make sustained and serious progress on decarbonization in the 20, you know, from really now 2024 through to the end of this decade, 2030, there is no 
chance of having a material reduction in CO2. And it's certainly kind of, um, if we're going to keep it anywhere near 1.5, we've got to make some unbelievably large transformations in what we're doing. So I think my sense is that COP29 next year and COP30 afterwards are the defining years because for infrastructure, you know, even if you, you know, if you're quick in the infrastructure world, by the time you've engaged a client, spoken to them, done a feasibility, decided to build a project, you do the planning, you do the permitting, you then commission the construction, the engineering, and the finance. You know, you're talking four to five years in the Western world. I did laugh talking to a Chinese entrepreneur who said that they'd gone from idea conception through planning, permitting, engineering, construction, asset operation, and financing in one year for a nearly 250 plus megawatt plant that did make me realize <laughs> maybe we in the west do a bit too much bureaucracy um not that should surprise anyone but <laughs> but you know for most people in the west it is a you know minimum four to six year process from start to finish to do anything big on decarbonization and so i think that is why the next two cops are going to be the mission critical ones because if they don't make life really difficult and unpleasant for investors to move companies to move and governments to move it's not going to happen and you know i think that's the thing i'm really hoping to see i'm hoping to see investors starting to come to the table realizing that they are going to have to pay for this transition and i think you know whether they pay through higher taxes to the government whether they pay through lower returns on the investments that they hold or whether they pay through um, having to basically take more risk on where they deploy um, or, or margins on the products that their business is selling being lower. The reality is there is only one way to do this, um, and it is going to be for investors to ultimately either give a license to businesses and governments to do more or to finance that themselves. And we didn't see enough of that this COP, but I'm hopeful that next time we will have to see more um, and people will expect more. So. Patrick, what about you? Have we tempted you over all these different clips and all of our comments that you might try and come along for next year? I, I have a few uh, a few folks that you'll you can you can send emails to and advocate on my behalf. Well, thank you very much, Alicia and Patrick, and thank you very much to all of our fantastic guests who spoke on this uh, episode of Everything About Hydrogen. Thank you very much as well to the organizer of COP28 for hosting all of us, and to you, our listeners, for sticking with us this year. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed all of the content that the team have put on. Uh, as we go into the next season, we'll be kicking off with an episode from our friends at Barclays Bank, talking to them about how they see the future of decarbonization and what they see the role of banking and finance is is unlocking that transition but stay tuned for many more episodes as we continue to dive into all of the exciting and often challenging but always entertaining aspects of the world of everything about hydrogen that was everything about hydrogen hosted by the team patrick malloy alicia eastman and chris jackson if you have a question for the hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us our handle is at about hydrogen thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time you